Hey, welcome to the Lifehouse Newport News podcast. Thanks for joining us. Our vision is to bring life change through Christ to all people. And we believe that happens when people say yes to Jesus. Do life together, get in the game and leave a legacy. If this podcast inspires and challenges you to grow in your faith, subscribe to ensure you don't miss a single episode and share it with someone you know who may need it too. Again, thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get to this week's episode. We are excited to continue the second part of our series, My Testimony, which is a series that we are doing to essentially do two things. First off, reiterate to you the vision of our church, and secondly, share a story of somebody within our church that embodies and lives out that part of the vision of our church. And last week, we talked about following Jesus. And, and let me tell you one more time what the vision of Lifehouse Newport News is. We exist as a church to help all people experience life change through Christ by following Jesus, doing life together, getting in the game, and leaving a legacy. And this is a four-week series. This is the second part, and we're essentially going over each one of those parts that we think, as people participate in, is a way that they experience this life change that Jesus promises us as we follow him. Last, last week, like I said, we talked about following Jesus. And this week, we're going to talk about the second part, which is doing life together. God's intention and God's design from the very beginning of God creating people was for you and for I to do life together. We, we can even see this. The first thing that God declared in the book of Genesis that was not good, the first thing was that man was alone was that man was by himself, is, is that he had nobody to do life with. And then it says that God created woman from the man and that essentially God gave Adam somebody to do life with. And you can see all throughout scripture, the benefits of being in relationship and doing life together. Let me give you a few of them that, that you probably know. Proverbs 27, 17 says this, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Ecclesiastes 4, 12 says this, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You can even see this concept in Jesus's ministry, how Jesus chose 12 people to join a group, to do life together, to learn what it means to be a follower of him. And you can even see in Jesus's personal relationships, he had his broad group of 12, and then, he, and then he also had his smaller group of three, Peter, James, and John. But you can also see in Jesus's life, he also had one super close brother and friend, and that was the apostle John. So even within Jesus's ministry, you can tell his purpose was to do life together as they follow him and even in Jesus's life. But you can also see this within the early church. Let me read you a short snippet in the book of Acts, which is a recorded history of the early church. Let me share with you uh, a brief snippet of, uh, of what the, the writer and historian Luke saw and observed within the church that marked the early church community. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 47 says this here. They, and it's talking about Christ followers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. 
They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then it says this, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You can see this, that throughout Scripture we can see it's God's intent, it's God's design for us as the body of Christ, as those who follow Jesus, to do life together. And that's why it's such an important part of the vision of this church is to somehow figure out how to do life together. But let's just be candid and let's just be honest. Doing life together is hard. Relationships are messy. Relationships are complicated, nuanced. I mean, we all bring baggage in. You, you, can, you can even tell in your relationships. I know you can say it's messy, it's difficult, especially during this time where, we, where it can just feel like we are so divided. But that still does, does not refract the call that God has for his people that, that call him Lord, that call him Savior as the church to do life together. And really, but at the same time, like I said, it's messy and there's challenges within our culture. And what I want to do is just do a quick cultural diet diagnosis and, and share with you what I believe and what I see are the greatest challenges that the church has to doing life together. And the challenges, I believe, can be summed up in these four things. Superficial, codependent, preference-based, and, and isolated. Let me, let me share with those, uh, those four things one more time. Superficial, codependent, preference-based, isolated. Those are the challenges that I see within the church of why it's so difficult for us to be in a relationship and do life together well. The first one, superficial, I, I believe is essentially because of pride, right? Like we don't want to actually show people our true selves because the truth is that so many of us are broken and weak and we want to appear better than we actually are. So we put this front up to people in public and we want to show them that we've got it all together. But really, the truth is on the inside, you're broken and you're falling apart. And beside this, and behind the scenes, you are a totally different person than you are in public. It's almost as if we want to project an image of who we want to be instead of who we really are. And the culture is discipling you to do that. Why? Because just think of one of the greatest ways that that actually happens is through social media. Now, I mean, you can project the kind of person on social media that you are not at all in private. And what that can actually, what that can actually do is put us within this place of just having superficial relationships. Think about it. Like, I've got 4,000 Facebook friends. I'm not like, can I really call them a friend? <laughs> right? This is like, I might have 4,000 Friends, but at the same time, like, how do we even define friend? We've got to be careful. One of the challenges is within our culture is we can have and be superficial people, but also have superficial re re relationships, mainly because of pride. The second challenge, though, is we can be codependent, unhealthily codependent. And typically, this happens because of past relational trauma. The truth is this, right? People have been significantly hurt in relationships and maybe that is you. Maybe growing up, your relationship with your parents was garbage and trash or you had trouble building relationships or you had something in your life personally that, that kept you from, uh, from practicing and being involved in healthy 
life-giving relationships. Maybe it was because of, of, you know, it was because of past dating partners that you got hurt and you were broken and you were broken down. Maybe, like I said, it was with your parents. And what it feels like is you almost have this deficit in your life that then now that you're grown up older, you are trying to fill that deficit that you did not receive when you were younger and you're trying to find it unhealthily in relationships. And what ends up or what can end up happening is you can be unhealthily codependent to find your purpose, your meaning, your self-esteem and your value from other people, which puts you in a unhealthy place of trying to find who you are and your sense of self from other people instead of from the source where you should get it. And that is from God. So what I've seen is when people are unhealthily codependent on somebody else, they end up putting a, they end up putting godlike burdens on finite people. A great example is in relationships, marriage, whatever, right? Whenever you've got somebody who is, who says something like they're my everything. I can't imagine life without them. And, and here's the thing, right? We, we understand there are people that are really important to us. But at the same time, if, if we don't go to get our sense of self, our sense of value, our sense of, of purpose from the source where all of that stuff should come from, and that is from God, then what we end up doing is we put God-like burdens and God-like purposes on finite people who are not God, who will fail you, who are not perfect, who sometimes have unhealthy and wrong motives towards you. We'll, we'll put on them a God-like burden that only God himself is supposed to fill. And when these other people fail us, we end up damning them. And here's the thing, right? I believe this is a challenge within our culture to do life together because we can almost be be unhealthily, overly codependent on people. And we've got to say, first off, God, I want to find my joy, my purpose, my significance, my self-esteem in you. And then as I get that, then that frees me to love and serve people instead of using people to try to fill a void and deficit that only God can fill. I hope that, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense here. Hopefully it's making sense to you, right? The third challenge that I see is this, uh, is preference-based, right? Where we live in, in a culture that is training you to be a consumer, that is essentially saying people are commodities that you can use and abuse to just build you up and if you don't like them and they're not meeting your specific needs and it's just like if they're not adding value to your life they are just something you can just push to the side not add value to and essentially say that bye and i mean just think about the dating world right and i mean just think about the way people date like like, like they swipe through people like they're shopping on i don't know amazon but the thing is this, right? It's training us to view people as just being something to consume instead of seeing them the way that God sees them where the thing is this, people are not stuff to, to, to just, or, or, or people are not just somebody or something to, to, to be consumed. There's somebody to be loved, right? And that's why we've got to realize that we are being shaped and formed to view people as products to be 
consumed. And the problem with that is this. When we are preference-based, we are then more prone to flock to the crowd that looks like us, acts like us, votes like us, shops like us, eats like us, works out like us, and then we demonize the others because it's not our preference. And we've got to ensure that we can see how, how this is influencing us within our culture because it's a challenge to us doing life together as God wants. Fourthly, though, isolation. Right? Isolation where... People are, are just lonelier than ever. I mean, just think of how much noise and so-called friends and so-called stuff we have around us that makes us feel like we're being seen and valued, heard, and cared for. But at the end of the day, is not, is, it, it does not actually bring, bring like presence into our lives. People are lonelier than ever. Isolated, more isolated than ever. And really, what is the core thing that leads to that? I really think it's, it's because people have been significantly hurt from past relational hurts and it breeds this fear that then they start, that, that then people that prefer isolation, they might say, all, all, you know, all, you know, all people are going to hurt you. I've tried it and man, people, they just hurt you. All people are, all churches are, all guys are, all girls are, and you begin, and you begin to be hard-hearted, numb, cold, and you'll start to, to say things like, I will never let somebody hurt me again, which, is, which essentially what you're saying is you are not going to let anybody get near you or you're not going to become vulnerable again to put yourself within a position to be loved. But if you take yourself out of a position to be loved, you also take yourself out of a position to be hurt. See, see, the truth is this, right? To be in valuable relationships, to actually be in real relationship where you do life together, you've got to be vulnerable. But the thing is this, when you are vulnerable, it opens you up to being hurt, right? And typically, whenever you get hurt, you say, I'm not doing that again, that hurt too much. So you push people out, you push people out to where literally it's just, it's just, you and you think you're protecting yourself, but actually what you're doing is you're keeping yourself from the very thing that your soul needs and that is relationship. So, so the truth is this, right? Isolation can numb you because you think you're protecting yourself, but actually what you're doing is you're keeping out the very thing that could actually bring life to your soul. Do you see these challenges here? Do you see these challenges, right? Codependency, preference-based, isolation. And the first one was, let me see if I can get this right, um, superficial. You can just see these are the challenges we have within the church to getting it right and getting us to actually do life together. But the thing is this, right? How, how can we do this? With, with this challenge that it is to be, to do life together, how can we, as the church, as the people of God, take steps towards no matter where you're at, no matter how you would define yourself, a superficial, codependent, preference-based, isolated. Maybe if that, if that defines you, what are some things you can do to get past those steps, to get to a place where, where you can actually start to do and be a part of what the second part of our vision is doing life together? I want to give you, again, three things because when you are a pastor, it seems like we always have to give you three things, okay? But um, the first... The first one's this, how do we do life together? First off, gain God's perspective of people. 
gain God's perspective of people. You know, one of the things that Paul said to a divided church, right? We, we, there, there was division back in that church in Jesus. There's division in the church now, right? Like that's something that will probably always be there in some way, shape, or form as long as we're on this planet and as long as there is sin here, right? But let me tell you what Paul said to the church in Corinth that I think is so powerful. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5, 16. He said, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. What, what he's saying is, is as Christ followers, we switch our lens in how we see people. Why? Because God has changed the way he sees us. It is, it is a direct result of us seeing people differently because God now sees sees us differently because we are not now enemies of God. We're friends of God because of what Jesus did within our place and for our sin. And when we put our faith and trust in what Jesus and what Jesus did, we, we are, are in now right standing with God to, to where now we are friends of God, not enemies of God. We are united with God. And what that does is we then start to take on his qualities of starting to see people the way that God sees people. And what Paul said here is don't now as a Christ follower, you don't regard anybody from a worldly cultural point of view. You should now view them the way that Christ views them. And how does God view people? Y'all, there's nothing more important to God than people. He died for people. Jesus died for people, not, not some sort of worldview, not some sort of ideals, not some sort of view or, or teaching or anything. Jesus died for people. What does that show you? The most important thing in God's eyes in people is people. We've got to start seeing people the way that God sees people. Just, just consider this truth. There is no one that you have ever locked eyes with that is not desperately loved by God. Even the most annoying people that, that, that just get you so angry, irritated, that you can't stand. God looks at them with a love. But the thing is this, right? If we're going to do life together, we have to value. We have to, to see the value and worth of people. I love what James 3.9 says, right? James was talking to, to a group of 12 churches that were battling division, that were battling class classism. And what James says is this here. He says, with the tongue, right? He's talking to them about the power of their words, and he's saying, hey, some of you in the church, with the tongue, you praise your Lord and Father. And then with it, you curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Then he says, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. He was essentially saying, how can you look at people that God created, that God loves, that God dies for, and claim to worship God, and look at somebody, at some other human being and curse them and say that you are a follower of Christ. Why? Because you should be putting on the same lens that Christ has and seeing people the way that he sees them. Do you, do you hear not just the correction, but the love in James's voice of saying, y'all, this should not be. And I'm asking you and telling you when you start to praise God, I love you, Jesus. But then you start to curse people and put down people that God created and God loves and God died for. I believe James is speaking to you and speaking to us and saying, how can this be? One of the core values at LifeHouse that, that we say is we honor everyone. Yes, everyone. You're like, hey, John, are you sure? Yes, everyone. Why? Because of the simple fact everyone's made in the image of God. They have intrinsic value, intrinsic worth. We don't care who you are, where you came from, how you got here, why you're here. You will be honored, if nothing, but for being made in God's image. 
at this church? Does honor always mean agreement? No. Does honor mean we're always going to see things the same? No. But honor does mean I acknowledge the value of you being made in the image of God. And that is the standard and the value and the foundation for us to do life together is when we acknowledge the value every human being has. Romans 12, 10 says this, says, be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Y'all, here's what I know. This is something that only the Holy Spirit can do, especially now. As you allow yourself to be shaped and molded by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you start to see people the way that God does. I, I can't preach this into you. It's got to be something that you, simply receive, that you simply let the Holy Spirit work in you, right? But this concept of this honor is so important. John Tyson says this here. He says, from now on, right, and he's quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 16, the verse we quoted earlier. He said, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, wrote the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, meaning we no longer filter people based on cultural categories or personal preferences. We have a lens of divine value that sees every person as Christ does. Jesus had a filter of honor for all he encountered. Regardless of the contempt their culture showed them, he saw differently. He didn't see tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, outcasts, or Samaritans. He saw people crowned with glory, worthy of welcome and recognition in the community of God. Jesus' filter of value created a community unlike the world had ever seen. How do we reclaim this honor filter in our world today? Y'all, I want to challenge you. I love that word, honor filter. Honor filter. I'm praying today that God would give you an honor filter as you see people, not just for your personal good, but also as the foundation, as the people of God, as a church community, as Lifehouse Newport News, that we would start to have an honor filter for people. Secondly, though, we just, not, we just don't need to have uh, a right perspective of people. We've got to have right expectations for relationships, right? Expectations, I say this, expectations is the breeding ground for, for disappointment. Have you ever been uh, in a situation like this, married couples out there, where y'all didn't really communicate about a certain date night and you go out and you had one expectation and she had one, the, and she had a different expectation and nobody's expectations were actually met and then it's like we just went out and spent a hundred dollars on stuff that we didn't even like or enjoy and we're fighting now what's 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 the point expectations matter expectations are huge right and here's a couple things i think we've got to understand about relationships even within the church friendships and things like that relationships aren't just for your happiness they're for your holiness right we can sometimes view people as they're the pathway especially within church just just to give me some feelings of happiness and contentment but, but, but what you see relationships are just for your are not just for your happiness they're also for your holiness meaning relationships is the battleground for where you are shaped and formed to ultimately be like Jesus Christ but also to where you where you have the training ground to put in practice love which first Corinthians 13 says you can do all the spiritual gifts you want to, but if you have love, you have nothing. And in relationships is where we get to practice the concept of being loved, but also practicing love. Relationships are one of the main tools that God uses to form you to be like himself. It's in the messy ins, outs, peaks and valleys, conflict and blessing of relationship where we get the opportunity to be shaped and formed to be like Jesus. 
And that's where I think we've got to shift the expectations of relationships. They're for our pleasure, they're for happiness, they're for hanging out, they're for common interest, but at the same time, ultimately, they are for helping you have a practice ground to shape and form inside of you more of who Jesus is. Also, too, though, relationships were never meant to complete you. They were meant to complement you. Meaning, as I said earlier, sometimes we can put, you know, godlike burdens on finite people and we can start, man, this friend completes me, this, this spouse completes me. And the problem with that is, is if somebody completes you, what happens when that person fails you, right? And that is why you find your completeness in God and what Jesus did for you. And as you receive what he did on the cross in your place and for your sins, you see your value and your worth and your self-esteem in him that he gives you value, he gives you worth, he gives you purpose. Then you are free to love and serve people instead of needing them and using them to fill a void that only God himself could fill. Relationships were never meant to complete you, but they we're meant to complement you. We can even see this in the first relationship, Adam, Eve, right? Eve did not complete Adam, he complimented him. It was a complementary relationship where, do you know what? They complimented each other. But it wasn't to complete each other. Their completeness was found in God, but they had the opportunity to complement each other. And you've got to have the right definition of relationships. You know, what always cracks me up when sometimes people think within the church there's not going to be conflict. Y'all, the church is a breeding ground for conflict. It just is. Why? Because, you know, different expectations, different people, different backgrounds, different, ex you know, different experiences, and you come in and there is emotional commitment, there is emotional ener energy, spiritual energy, physical energy. There's a bunch of different variables that go into church relationships, and sometimes people can have the wrong, the wrong expectations and think, man, we're a church, man, it's going to be good. And then when they hit conflict, they can think, well, God must not be there. You know what? It's, it's this, you know what? People are just crazy, and man, I can't trust no one. I can't trust the church. But the truth is this, guys, there's been conflict in the church even from the beginning. Do you remember in Acts 2, whenever we, we you know, in, uh, in Acts 2, 42 through 47, that we saw how it was, you know, you know all the believers were together, you know, they had everything in common. They shared their possessions. And it was all like this perfect utopia. But then you go to Acts chapter 6. And let me read you a little bit about what went on in the church. Acts chapter 6, right? This is starting in verse, in verse number 1. It says, but as the believers rapidly multiplied. So there was growth. There was church growth going on. They were growing. It says there were rumblings of discontent. So the church is growing. Then people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, then it says there's rumblings of discontent. It says, the Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the, in the daily distribution of food. So you've got two different sorts of people groups here saying one is being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. So there was conflict. Almost, you could say, like some sort of like discrimination, prejudice going on. There was, conf there was conflict, right? And then it says this. So the 12, and these are the 12 apostles, the leaders within the church, called a meeting of all the believers. They said, look, we apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. And so brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we will give them this responsibility. Then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the word. Everyone liked this, everyone liked this idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, Philip, Procurious, Nicanor, Timon, and Pumbaa. I'm just kidding. Timon, Par Parmenas, Nicholas of Antioch, 
It says, these seven men were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as, and laid their hands on them. So God's message, here's the, here's the thing. They had conflict and they worked the conflict out in a God-like, God-honoring way. And then it says, in verse number seven, it says, so God's message continued to spread. The number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem and many of the Jewish priests were converted to. Do you see what happened here? They had conflict, like pretty intense conflict. There was like classism or prejudice or something going on. And they worked through it. And as a result, the church continued to grow. The church continued to grow. It did not stop growing. It was growing. They hit conflict. They, they rightly worked through the conflict. And then from there, they kept on growing. And y'all, this is what I'm challenging you and challenging us. And if we're going to do life together, we've got to rightly, godly, in a scriptural way, handle conflicts when they come up in the church. Because it is inevitable, y'all. We're full of imperfect people. I'm... I am imperfect. We have very imperfect leaders. We have very imperfect people within the church. Like we're a group of imperfect people trying to follow a perfect God. Therefore, we need grace with each other. We need understanding with each other. And we need to learn to stick it out even when conflict happens. Why? So the church can do as the church did in the book of, of Acts. Keep on growing. I just want to ask you, look, when it, I, I, you're going to hit conflict at LifeHouse at some point in time whether it's relational conflict with somebody or if you don't know why the church is doing something. And what I just want to challenge, challenge you to do is don't run. Don't hit conflict and run because that conflict could actually be the greatest tool that God will use to grow you and shape you and bring unity and understanding and will actually go deeper in, in this pursuit of doing life together. Don't circumvent the process. And every time that my wife and I, we've been through seasons of conflict within our relationship. Hard to understand, I know. <laughs> every season that has been the hardest in conflict right after that season was the greatest season of intimacy within our relationship. Why? You can't circumvent the process. In relationships, iron sharpens iron. And sometimes whenever that iron is sharpening, there's sparks flying and there's fire rolling. Thirdly though, right? We do life together by prioritizing relationships. The truth is this, guys. Relationships take time and they take commitment. One of the things the Hebrews 10, 25 says, it says, let us not neglect meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, look, guys, don't give up prioritizing relationships. Don't give up prioritizing times of worshiping together. Don't give up times of gathering together as the church of God in smaller groups and being together and doing life together. And y'all, we, we are so busy. Our rhythms uh, of life are so messed up that honestly there's times we have to pause and take an inventory and say, is our life set up to sustain the kind of life that I want to live, especially relationally? Especially relationally, because the truth is this, guys. We prioritize people and relationships because God prioritizes people and relationships. He prioritizes it and because he prioritizes it, he calls us to. The truth is this, right? You need a place to serve and be served. You need a place to know, to, to know others and be known. You need a place to, to listen, to be listened to and listen to others. We, we have a core value at our church, discipleship through relationships where we think the place that God ultimately shapes us and forms us, like we said earlier, is in the concept of relationship and doing life together. Because the truth is this, guys, it's not if you hit a tough time, it's not, it's not 
you know, it's not if you hit stormy waters, it's when. And we want to tell you a story right now. We told you we're going to tell you a story. We, 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 we want to show and tell you the story of Joe and Rebecca and show you and tell you how through God's grace and through God's, and through God's mercy and them doing life together with Lifehouse, they have experienced and seen what we're exactly talking about today. Check this story out. Uh, hello, my name is Joe. This is my wife, Rebecca. I applied at a job over there in Newport News in Virginia. We're from Houston, Texas, and uh, a man named Kerry answered the, answered the phone, and he said, come on down. So I drove up there by myself, and uh, I'm waiting on a couple of days to see if I can meet Kerry. On the, on the days I'm waiting, I said, well, I might as well go to the gym. I need to find a, a barber shop anyway. And so maybe somebody at the gym knows where a barber can cut my hair. So I'm working out and I see a, a, a man with a nice pretty haircut to the side. And uh, uh, I said, him, he's the one. I'm gonna go ask him where he got the haircut. So what happens, it was John. I met John for the first person I ever met here in Virginia, this is the guy. And uh, he told me where he got his haircut and uh, I like, okay, cool. So the next day uh, I went back and I'm waiting to figure about this job and I had to go meet Carrie in person this time. And I met Carrie and uh, um, I said something about God. He seen my tattoo had a, of something about God. And uh, he said, he said, you believe in God? I go, yeah. And then we started obviously talking about God instead of work. And, uh, uh, and then I told him I met some dude at the, uh, at the gym and I described him and everything. And uh, he goes, hold on a second. I said, okay. So he looked on his phone and he goes, is this the guy? I go, yeah, man, that's him, man. That's the guy. That's the guy I met. And they started laughing. He started laughing so loud. And uh, uh, he called him up and he goes, hey, uh, I'm, guess who I'm speaking to? And, and it was crazy. It, it was crazy how uh, the first two people I met in Virginia was John and then Carrie. Y'all know who they are. Y'all know how they're, they're, uh, they're almost like brothers. So. So when I came down um, with him in October of 2019, um, I started going to church with him. Uh, and I had actually found out that I was pregnant on the 22nd of October. Um, it was a great pregnancy. Uh, we were doing great. We were going to church. We were telling everybody hi, you know, talking about the baby, how excited we were, how happy we were. It was our first kid. Um, and then we found out that it was a boy. We were so excited. And the whole time we were going to church and doing everything, we thought everything was fine until my 20-week ultrasound. They were kind of alarmed and you know, they were asking me all these questions about the amniotic fluid. You know, was there any leaking? You know, has anything happened? When I went to the maternal fetal specialist, they did the ultrasound and they basically told me that either the baby's kidneys don't work or he doesn't have any at all. And that we should probably terminate because the baby wouldn't survive outside of the womb. You know, we had literally just that day to think about do we want to abort this baby or not and we decided that no we don't we're gonna keep this baby this baby is our baby he's our angel he's our everything it's our first child you know I can't do that to him and so we did we kept the baby 
Um, we kept going to church. We, you know, danced around the living room. You know, we just enjoyed the time that we did have with our son. Uh, we prayed every night. We um, sang to him. We read to him. Um, he's even prayed over my belly, talked to him, and just told him that everything was going to be okay. There was a Sunday we went to church. I, I was like, well, I'll just tell Carrie what's going on. And uh, I told Carrie, hey, look, man, this, it's not good news. Uh, the doctors are saying that our baby's not going to make it. And they even gave us a, 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 a paper and a pen to sign a signature saying that, you know, if you're going to terminate the baby or not. So I told him the whole story. And uh, he said, wait right here. And there was other people greeting other people. And, and he went and over there and over there and over there and telling, doing all like this. And uh, uh, just two minutes to almost three minutes, there was like six people with us. And uh, uh, there he says, come on, we're gonna pray for him. We're gonna pray for him. And I've never seen this done in my life. I've never been a part of this. Well, she's never been a part of anything like that. Strangers coming over here. Hands they had hands like this, here, like this, all in the belly. Everywhere. And all over here. Everywhere. And they was praying, 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 praying. I got goosebumps all over me. I was like, oh my God, this is it. You know, um, this love, I said, I said, God's gonna hear all these prayers. It's, you know, and um, I, it's just something that I, I never experienced and that how people can love a strangers. They, none of these people really know us. And they didn't have to pray for us the way they did. So that's something that's gonna stay with us for pretty much the rest of our life. So in the end of April, um, I started feeling you know, less movements from the baby. Uh, I was probably about six to seven months at this point. We got our stuff, we went to Norfolk, and as soon as we got in there, they started looking at everything and they told me that the baby was in distress. Then Joe came in and it felt like just a few minutes and they go, baby! And they brought him out and they put him, they did the CPR, they put him in the incubator um, and they took him to get worked on. And we finally got to see him. And that was the most amazing thing in the world. And we, we prayed, we prayed for um, just to even see him. We prayed just to even see his eyes, just to even touch him. That's what we prayed for. And, and he gave us that prayer. He didn't stay but three days, but it means so much those three days. And while we were at the hospital with him, there was a point where, you know, we were holding him because they said, you know, that's pretty much it. It's, you know, you can hold him and, you know, just be with him. So we held him and Joe was holding him and I'll never forget it. He goes, he goes, call Carrie. And I told Carrie, I said, I said, Becca, call Carrie, because I couldn't even dial the phone. And because uh, uh, I was holding, holding our son for the last time. And I said, and uh, when I called Carrie, I, I just told him, I said, look, dude, I said, I'm running out of prayers. And I usually don't run out of prayers. <laughs> but that day I was. And uh, he said again, there he goes again. He says, hold on. Like he told me, hold on last time. And uh, I wanna say like two minutes. And there was like three, four people online. Like, and uh, 
There they go again, praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And all the negative and, and all the, the, the anxiety and scared was leaving my body. And, and I had hope again. And, uh, and he, he told me, I love you. Other people prayed over me and whew, I was at ease. It was just like that. It, it was weird, money that, something money came by, something that no one can take away. Just, it was so weird, I can't explain it. I'm losing my best friend and just the comfort for, from other people, just ease my thoughts. So, so yeah, um, life, life is hard. And uh, if we didn't have these, these friends, these people that come comfort us, and in a time in need, and and I tell you what, man, our hearts were broken. We were crushed. We didn't have our moms, our dad, our brothers and sisters. We just had strangers that were willing to accept us in their life as a brother and sister. Going through this journey has taught us that you just can't do life alone. Wow, what an incredible story, powerful story of why doing life together is so powerful, not just for those that have to be served, but for the opportunity to serve, not just a place to be loved, but a place to love. I just want to thank Joe, Joe and Rebecca for telling their story and sharing that with us and, 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 and giving us the opportunity to be a part of doing life together with them. The truth is this, right? There, there's so many people within our church, you feel alone, you feel like you, you need exactly what Joe and Rebecca experienced. And y'all, the church needs to be the place where that happens. But y'all, the truth is this, right? We have got to have the right perspective of people. We've got to have the right expectations of relationships and we've got to prioritize relationships, make time. Thank you again for joining us today. If you need prayer, have any questions about what you just heard or said yes to Jesus for the first, second or third time today, please reach out to us at lifehousenn.com or text 757 690-2401. We'd love the opportunity to pray for you and help guide you through the next steps in your faith journey. In the meantime, we hope you'll join us online next Sunday at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at lifehouseonline.com or in person for a live worship service at 8.30 a.m. or 10.15 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Theater in Newport News, Virginia. Visit lifehousenn.com for more information or to reserve your live worship service spot today.